Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When you take that blow of a failure, I had a lot of people around me saying, Jim, it's okay. You know, you can always do this. You can always do that. But, you know, I had two institutions and 14 individual angel investors place their bet on me and they had confidence in me that I was going to return at minimum, return their capital, but hopefully return more than their capital. And so as crazy as it sounds, the two institutions, I, I, I want to be very clear, I definitely care about, but they were kind of faceless institutions. The 14 individual angel investors that I had to go sit with across the table in person, look them in the eye and say, you know, thank you so much for your confidence and belief in me. But I lost all of your money. It, it's gone and it's never coming back. Um, my goodness, it was it was definitely the hardest thing that I've, I've had to do in my life. And that includes going through a divorce. Um, but it was also very humbling. And I think that, you know, it was it was at this point where I had just read um, Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. And I just said, look, I have I, I can't come out here as this egotistical, arrogant schmuck anymore. I just got to be honest and open up and and be vulnerable. And I did that. And it was Again, I, I use the word humbling intentionally because 12 of my 14 individual angel investors, they looked at me and they said, Jim, you know, we get it. This is part of it. Um, here's what we ask of you. Whatever you do next, I want you to come see me because I want to write you another check. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jim, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. No, thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually was uh, introduced to you uh, by way of one of our listeners who told me uh, about your story. Uh, and there are two stories in particular that really caught my attention, scaling a startup to a massive amount of money and also running a startup into the ground subsequently at, you know, after the success, which is even more interesting to me. Uh, but before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on your life? I feel like I've been a lone wolf uh, most of my life. I actually have a painting in my basement that is just, uh, it's a Jeep with its headlights on in a foggy desert, you know, and it's all by itself on a, a dark desert highway, if you will, from the Eagles. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely had a few friends um, and I could, you know, kind of uh, uh, ebb and flow between multiple different groups, but I definitely had no affiliation to, to any of those groups. So um, I, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't pick one. Mm. I mean, how did that sort of lone wolf mentality uh, end up impacting your life and your career as, as it progressed? 
Well, so because of my background, you know, I grew up very poor and I didn't really see myself associating with anybody or affiliating with any other groups. And I think that's been uh, a critical part of the success in my life because I didn't let anyone else hold me back. Um, One of the things that my wife and I talk about all the time is I'm thankful for that lone wolf mentality um, and the fact that I don't really have a lot of close uh, friendships or close family ties because we can go anywhere and do anything without the ties that a lot of people uh, get held to their, their their certain place or their certain worldview. I don't have that. So I think it's affected my life in a really good way, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of the, the, you know, worldview, uh, you know, being w- what it is, you know, obviously, like you said, a lot of people have affiliations and ties that actually, you know, that they're unable to transcend. And I'm curious, you know, what advice that you would have to them, uh, you would, you would give to them. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in Southern Indiana and if you don't know anything about Southern Indiana, it is, um, I, I'm gonna be very clear. I loved my childhood, but, um, it's very backwards thinking. It's very much the old, um, this is our way, Christian conservative, um, the Bible belt, all of that, you know, it's conservative worldviews. And, um, as a result of that, I just adopted all those. I didn't know anything else but to adopt that. Uh, And then I joined the Marine Corps. And what I found in the Marine Corps was whatever your worldviews are, all they do is tell you that that's the best worldview in the world. And they just kind of like cement the worldview that you have. And so I went from this very impressionable youth and kind of just attaching myself to what I saw around me to the Marine Corps telling me like, yep, that's the way the world works. And so I was just kind of stuck in that way for a really long time. I finally got out of the Marine Corps. And I started traveling just domestically here in the United States because of work. I've, I've always been in sales or an entrepreneur, which is obviously also sales. Um, so I started traveling domestically. And as I did that, it started to open my eyes a little bit. And I was like, wait a minute, things aren't always like they are in Southern Indiana. This is a little bit different. Um, and then I met my wife and we started traveling internationally for pleasure. And that's when my eyes really started to open up. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. There's a lot of different ideas out here and different people and languages and food and religion. Just everything was just different. And so it really started to finally break up that cement in my life and show me that things could be different. And it was it was a very hard, it was almost like an identity crisis to go through that. But my goodness, I've done it. It's been absolutely amazing. So my advice uh, back to your original question, I would just encourage people so much to get their passport and go explore this world. It's so much smaller than you actually think it is, but the vastness of it just shows you so much opportunity. And I think it's very important for people to take advantage of that. Mm. So walk me through, uh, you know, how you end up, you know, getting to do this work that you've done, you know, where you've scaled a a business to like an eight figure exit. And then you walk me to the journey that led to that point. Sure. So uh, my first memory of what I wanted to do when I grew up, if you will, was back in fourth grade. I realized that I wanted to be a graphic artist. And so at that time, you know, I was big into sports. And so I was like trying to design uh, jerseys for my favorite NBA teams and, you know, favorite baseball teams and all that kind of stuff. Just, you know, uh, not even on computer yet, just kind of sketching that stuff out and showing my friends like, hey, would you buy this? You know, those kinds of things. And, and, And so everything in school just kept leading to that, leading to that, leading to that. I got to be a senior in high school and and I'd now been exposed to like uh, printing classes and screen printing so I could make my own t-shirts and all this kind of stuff. And I was enamored with it. It was exactly what I wanted to do. The only wrinkle was that now I wanted to not only be a graphic artist, but I wanted to be a graphic artist in Japan. So from eighth grade through 12th grade, I took Japanese and I was like really trying to learn the language because that's what I want to do. I wanted to move to Tokyo and do this profession there, right? Natively. And 
I get to senior year and I apply to, to go to college to, to you know, study visual communications. I get accepted to the school of my choice. And remember, you know, I started this conversation by saying I was poor and, and I don't I don't say that lightly. So I got my acceptance letter from the school of my choice. And I remember you know being so excited and just elated. And I told my dad and he looked at me and he said, son, I, I, I love you, but I have no idea how you expect us to pay for that. You know, I can't afford that. And it was very uh, disheartening and very crushing, honestly. And um, I didn't know how to react completely. All I knew was that the the man that I was supposed to respect as, you know, my father and my caretaker just crushed my dreams. And so I lost a lot of respect for him at that point. And again, realize I'm an 18 year old ignorant kid at this point. It's easy to look back now, but I just lost all respect for him and I didn't know what to do next. And he, the, you know, the next words out of his mouth, I wasn't going to listen to or regardless. But he said, you know, I really think you should join the Air Force. And I was like, okay, well, the man who just crossed my dreams told me to do something. Definitely not going to do that. Uh, He had previously been in the army and I had just no interest in being like my dad. So I wasn't going to do that. No interest in getting on a ship. So the Navy was out. And so I remember it vividly. It was uh, Valentine's Day of 2000, uh, the year 2000. And I went and saw the man in blue, the Marine Corps recruiter. And, uh, you know, we started talking and he's like, you know, you can do graphic design and visual communications in the Marine Corps. And again, remember, I'm an arrogant, brazen 18 year old kid. And I looked at him and I said, no, you can't. All you do is kill people. And he said, well, you know, if you if you ever change your mind on something like that, I'd love to explore the world with you and show you what the Marine Corps could offer you. And so fast forward a little bit. Um, visual communications, graphic design is one of the only occupational fields in the Marine Corps where you actually have to be accepted into it. So you have to submit a portfolio and be accepted. And I did that. And I, and I got to go then be a graphic artist uh, in the Marine Corps. And it was just something that... Uh, really just, you know, opened up a huge, huge opportunity for me there. Hmm. What um, what did the Marine Corps teach you about leadership, human behavior uh, and relationships that you have applied in your life going forward? So, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I completely answered your last question, so I'll kind of allude to that one as well. Yeah. But the, the biggest things that um, that they taught me and, and I, it's funny just when you when you bring up certain things, just how vivid memories get stuck in your head. So the biggest thing the Marine Corps taught me, and I know this is going to sound counterintuitive, is they taught me how not to be a leader. And what I mean by that is in the Marine Corps, you have um, this culture that has an instantaneous obedience to orders. Right. When they say get down, you get down or else you die. And I totally get that. And I totally respect that. But I think it goes too far because, in my opinion, and this is this isn't for everybody, but there's a lot of Marines that stay in the Marine Corps because they can't do anything else but be a Marine. And so for those that join the Marine Corps to actually, you know, advance in their career or just advance in their life, um, it, it's hard for, for us. And so I remember I had a master sergeant when I was getting out of the Marine Corps and he said, you know, at the time I was a corporal, he said, Corporal Brown, why are you getting out of the Marine Corps? You won't make it in the civilian world. And I kind of chuckled and I, and I looked at him, I said, Master Sergeant, the reason I'm getting out of the Marine Corps is because of comments exactly like that. I said, if we go out there right now and, and talk to the platoon, all those Marines will follow me because they respect me and they know that I will do the work that I'm asking them to do. None of these Marines respect you. The only thing they respect is that rank on your collar. 
And I just don't have a, an affinity toward uh, positional authority. It just doesn't do anything for me. And so I, I know that, like I said, it sounds counterintuitive, but that taught me how to treat people and how to work with people and interact with people and, and honestly get people to do things out of respect for you. And so answering you know, the latter part of your, your previous question, how the Marine Corps led to you know, the work that, that I do now, once I got out, you know, I, I knew that by taking the challenge of becoming a Marine, I could do anything. I mean, I, I had I had so much um, faith in myself and confidence in myself that I could literally do anything. So I got out of school and I made the choice to either or I had the choice, I'm sorry, to either go to business school. That was my idea of what I had to do to be successful or start my own business. And I chose at that time to go ahead and go to business school. And I went for a semester and I dropped out. And I went to I went to Indiana University, one of the best business schools in the entire nation. But I went for a semester and I dropped out. And again, I'm still brazen, still arrogant at this point. Um, It was because, in my opinion, if these professors knew how to make money, they would be doing it, not teaching me how. And so I dropped out and started my first business. And very quickly, I, I grew that business to about a quarter of a million dollars a year in revenue. I had two employees that, uh, you know, my all my buddies had just graduated college and they're all they're thinking about is going out and uh, drinking and, and trying to pick up girls. And I'm like, guys, I can't do that. You know, I have to provide for these two employees as well as myself. And um, I learned very early at that point that I had to be a salesman, even though I didn't know what that meant, but I had to sell something to someone else so that they gave me money so that I could sustain my business and honestly the payroll, like I said, of my employees. And so it's kind of funny, at least it is to me. I kind of, you know, had some success early on in my business career. I was selling stuff and I really didn't have any questions except for I started to lose business. Like, so I would be being told no in my pitches. And so when people were telling me, yes, I had no problem. Like, okay, you, you're saying yes and you're, you're buying from me. But it was those no's that I started to get that I just like, I don't understand this. I want to better understand why I'm being told no. And I remember I, I met with a guy by the name of John DeGregory and uh, I, I was talking to John and I said, John, you know, I really, really am trying to branch out into this new world of business and I could use your help. You know, could you uh, introduce me to someone you think could use the services that I've told you about? And so he introduces me to somebody by the name of Andy Ellsbury. And the long and the short of this is I come to find out later that he couldn't sell anything to Andy Ellsbury. So he was trying to like become a friend of mine by giving me this lead, if you will, just knowing that it was someone he couldn't close. And so therefore he knew I wasn't going to be able to close this person either. Mm-hmm. So I meet with Andy and, um, you know, we had great conversations and it felt as though he was going to buy what I was selling at that point. And we, had an, our, we came to our next meeting, which was in my opinion, the closing meeting. And he looks up and he says to me, Jim, who taught you how to sell? And I just kind of leaned back in my chair. I straightened up my shirt, crossed my arms. And I said, look, I'm self-taught, you know, with a big smirk on my face. And Andy looks at me and says, well, it shows because you really suck. And I was like, oh, say what? And he said, now, look, I'm going to buy from you because I think you can actually deliver on what you're telling me. But you suck at sales. And I was like, all right, this, I got I to gotta figure this out. And it wasn't a week later. And a week later, I find myself in a Starbucks. And I, I remember the, the actual Starbucks vividly. I was meeting with a guy by the name of Matt Nettleton in a very similar situation. I started talking to Matt and... I find that he's just staring out the window and I'm probably five minutes into my pitch to him. And I said, I'm sorry, Matt, but like, am I offending you? Did I say something wrong? And he looked at me and said, 
were you trying to sell me something? Because if you were, you really suck at this. And so seriously, within two weeks, two people that I thought I was supposed to respect in the business world, like tell me how bad I am at sales. And so I knew at that point I had to go, you know, if you will, get an education. And so it just so happens, turns out that Matt Nettleton happened to be a sales coach, you know, very good one at that. And I wrote the biggest check of my entire life to, to have him coach me, um, uh, to be a salesperson. And, you know, that was, the kind of one of the precipices of, of change in my life that I'm like, okay, now I understand this process of the world of sales and how to, you know, guide someone through a, a buying behavior. But so that's how I went all the way from fourth grade wanting to, you know, be a graphic designer in Japan to all the way to now being a salesperson. And now you start to enter into the world of technology and venture capital and all these types of things. And so it was that process that I learned combined with the passion of the actual you know, product or service that I was selling. I knew the ins and outs of that. And that's what allowed me to start to have some of those successes, as you said, the, you know, the eight billion, eight figure um, exit and whatnot. You know, um I'm curious, you know, in that moment, you know, you mentioned this idea of being a brazen, young, sort of ego-driven person multiple times uh, already throughout the course of our conversation. Uh, and it's interesting to me that in those moments when you were told that you suck at sales, that didn't, you know, end up becoming your natural reaction. Uh, I, I'm curious why that is or why you think that is. Like, what changed between then and the sort of brazenness that you had before? Well, I want to be clear. I, I it, it just made me stop and reflect and think, um, but it didn't change that outlook at all. It wasn't until uh, just a couple of years ago when I had the biggest professional failure, biggest professional failure I've ever had, uh, that I changed that. So I just don't know that I had an outward reaction to it. I just said, okay, there's something here that I want to try to figure out because again, I was still having success. It just happens, just so happened with those two people, I didn't have success. So I would just say, you know, so what? Who cares? Who's next? Right. Um, that was kind of my, my reaction. But when they told me that it was an, an internal thing of like, okay, there's something here for me to learn and figure out. Mm. Well, let's do this. Walk me through, uh, you know, the, the process of an eight figure exit. And, you know, I think what I'm much more interested in, uh, obviously, you know, we know how your external world changes when something like that happens. I'm curious how your internal world changed as a result of that. As a result of the actual exit? I mean, the whole process and the experience uh, of having something as huge as an eight-figure exit in your life. Yeah, so, and I want to be clear, I was not even a... a, a, a I, not even a minority shareholder. I was a very tiny shareholder. I was the guy in charge of, of sales. And so I definitely benefited from the sale, but I don't want anybody to get the notion that I took home any big, big, big lump sum of cash. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I think that with, with both of them, so the first company I worked for, we actually, they were about a million dollars in revenue when I joined them. Um, and I took them from one to about $11 million in about two years. And I, I joined them. They actually had a very similar um, product offering to what I had with my previous company, but I just kept beating my head against the wall. I was uh, having some success. I was making some sales, but I couldn't find the success that they were having. Even at a million dollars in revenue, what they were when I joined them, I couldn't find the repeatable success. So it was the delivery mechanism that I was struggling with. And so everything they seemed to touch would turn to gold. And I said, okay, I'm good at what I do as far as the sales go. Cause again, I've now I've studied and I've gotten this process and I figured that out. But I said, I, I just met with him. I called him. I met with him and I said, hey, I, I think I'd like to try to join you guys. I want to be able to get into bigger opportunities and bigger companies and bigger boardrooms and whatnot. And so they like, yeah, let's do this. And, and you know, their average contract at the, at the time was really only about $5,000 a year when I came in. 
as I started to do this, I just applied what I knew to the industry and started to up level that a little bit. By the time I left, the largest single deal that I sold for them was $1.2 million. And I think that, you know, you talked about what's the internal change that's happening. I was just getting more and more confident. So that confidence was just continuing it to build. And it got to a point where from a uh, success standpoint, I didn't feel like anybody could touch me. So when I was going out and doing my pitches and my offerings, you know, I didn't feel like I needed their business. I had this notion in my head that I was already independently wealthy and just didn't need them. And as a result of that, uh, again, that could come off very arrogant as well. But what it did was allow me to have a business conversation at a much bigger level than really being hurt if I don't get that business because of the paycheck that it might have meant to me or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So that's what allowed me to like just scale up my conversations in the business room. I mean, I I've talked to, you know, and been face to face with CMOs of fortune 50 companies and, and had them sign seven figure contracts with me. So I I've had that success, but I think it was like you said, there was that internal, uh, um, confidence boost that just I kept continuing to see and level up with. So then you fast forward to to the next company. I was recruited over there to, you know, they were shifting their product. They wanted someone to come in and hire a brand new sales team, help pivot the product, take it to market and go. And I want to be very clear. I was I was very fortunate to be surrounded by a great team. So someone who, you know, managed all the accounts and kept the revenue that we did have, someone who managed and built a new product, and I was just really solely focused on take this product to market. And so because of the success that I had with the previous company, I was able to call on these Fortune 50, Fortune 100 companies and get in the door. And that's all I needed to be able to do at that point is get in the door. Because once you let me in the door, I'm closing the deal, you know, at that point. And so, you know, fast forward with this one. Two years later, it was just, you know, this tiny win after tiny win after tiny win that starts to level up. And uh, our founder, Chris Baggett, was able to, you know, uh, open a door for to Oracle, who uh, ended up acquiring our company for, you know, into the into the eight figures. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone, so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators, any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. You know, one of the themes that I, I sense just from um, talking to you about this is a sense of detachment from the outcome uh, in terms of what it is that you're trying to accomplish uh, here. Because you mentioned, you know, uh, you kind of thought of yourself as independently wealthy in these sales situations. And uh, it sounds, you know, very much like you're approaching this with a, a sense of detachment that allowed you to not, you know, get emotionally invested in the outcome. And I'm curious, how do people cultivate that capacity in their own lives, regardless of what it is they're trying to accomplish? That's a great question. And I wish that I would have known that's what I was doing earlier. It just seemed natural at that time. It wasn't until I had my failure that I started to study Buddhism, honestly. And that one of the major tenets of Buddhism is to completely separate your effort from the outcome, no matter what it is, right? So if you write a book, the fact that you wrote the book should be good enough. The outcome is a completely separate event. And you have to be able to treat those two things completely separately. But when you go back to what I was doing, I was, like I said, I was just doing it completely internally um, or, or without knowing that that's what I was doing. But it has become now one of the biggest things that I do. So now when I'm prospecting into a company and now when I'm you know, pitching a new company, I have completely detached the outcome, whatever they say from my internal efforts. I know that as long as I'm doing the daily things that I need to do to be the best me personally, the best me as a business person, the best me as a dad, the best me as a husband, that's that's the biggest input that I can do, and it's the only thing that I control can control. The other part of that, the outcome, it's a completely separate thing, and I have to detach them. So, you know, for me, it was studying Buddhism. Um, I'm not a practicing Buddhist, anything along like along that. I just wanted to to read and understand those those philosophies. But um, that's was the biggest thing for me. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think about this in areas of my life where I have, you know, friendships, relationships, whatever it might be. And, and you, know, you realize, I think any one of us intellectually understands that, hey, you have absolutely no control over what another person does, feels or thinks. Right. Um, it, it really you don't. I, I, I think one of the things that's interesting for me was I didn't, you may have read this book, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Probably the yep. chapter that really struck me the most was the one where he says, don't take anything personally and nothing anybody does is because of you. And, you know, like I get that intellectually. And at the same time, I don't know that I have gotten to the point where I'm unaffected by an outcome that isn't to my own liking. Does that make sense? It totally does. Yeah. So is there a way to get to the point where I'm not as affected by it? <laughs> you know, I don't know that, um, and until you start to have some things happen to you in your life, like, I mean, of course, I mean, we all grow up and we all think that we have the entire world figured out. And um, as you continue to get older, you realize how much you actually don't know. And so um, there, there's so many quotes that are going through my head right now that, you know, one from Mark Twain that talked about how my something along, I'm going to paraphrase, you know, at the age of 17, my father was an idiot. But the but by the age of 35, I realized how smart he had gotten in the last two decades. Mm -hmm. um, just things like that. But no, I, I think that until you start to actually experience life, um, you're not able to even consider the idea of separating the two, the input from the outcome. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about uh, the opposite story of this, where you actually <clears throat> basically managed to take <clears throat> a startup that was incredibly successful and, you know, take the revenues down to, from what I remember correctly, zero. Uh, talk to me about how that happened, what you think caused it, what you learned from it, and how it's changed you as a person. Yeah, so the... Uh, I'll just correct one thing. So I actually raised a million dollars in venture capital. There was okay. uh, not any revenue with the company at that time. But um, the, I'm going to start with the failure and, and tell you what happened. It was all pride and ego. Mm -hmm. um, it was also the reason why I started the company. So w go back to that exit that I had just had and that I was just talking about. I was at the point, you know, I, I was completely debt free, which was a big goal in my life. I had money in the bank. I was making a great, great income. Um, I mean, I just everything was going great. It was just going amazing. And that's when I said to myself, you know what? Why am I doing this? Let me, you know, everything I touch turns to gold. Jim Brown is just gold. I, I'm, I'm bulletproof. I can't lose. Let me do something I've never done before. Let me get into this venture capital game. So I left this amazingly well-paying job at Oracle after this exit. And I said, you know what? I, I really know B2B sales. That's what I'm good at. So let me raise a million dollars for a B2C mobile app app company. And fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to see it, um, I always like to surround myself with good people. I, I, I brought two of my friends with me, two of my really talented good friends. And together in less than 60 days in Indiana, which if you know anything about the venture capital community in Indiana, this is kind of unheard of. We raised a million dollars in venture capital for this company with no product. It was a PowerPoint deck. Mm -hmm. And so just looking at that event alone, the ability to raise a million dollars, I thought that that was proof that I was amazing at what I did. And I also thought it was market acceptance of our idea that because the investors were willing to write a million dollar check for this, that clearly it was a good idea. It was a good business. Um, so many things went into the failure. But uh, the idea behind the company that we were starting was we thought that there should be a check engine light for your home, if you will. Right. So with the 
combination of things like the Internet of Things, the convenience economy, um, you know, big data. We thought that a home should be able to talk to its phone because, you know, I'm, I'm 35 and I believe that my generation and definitely the next generation, we're not a handy group of people. And even if we were handy, we don't want to work on our home. We want this idea of like condo living, but in our personal residence. And so that's what we were trying to build. We wanted this, this device that contained all the information that's ever happened to your home, every system, every paint color on the wall, the carpet type on your floor, what color mulch you got, all of that kind of stuff. And when your house needed something, it would send a notification to your house to say, hey, it's time to change the filter in your HVAC system, or it's time to have your carpets cleaned, or it's time to you know insert something here, right? But not only that, it would it would tell you how to do it if you were a DIYer, which I'm not at all. But if you if you were like me, it would say, also here's how much it would cost to have a service provider come do this for you, uh, and just push this button, and we'll trigger somebody to come out, and it will be all be taken care of. Because uh, if you own a home if you're, and you're listening to this, you you know that home maintenance and home ownership sucks because you're constantly dealing with all this maintenance issue. And then when you need somebody, you call three different people. Some of them never even call you back. One person's quote is three times higher than the other. They can't get to you for two weeks. Like it's just a big big headache. And so we try to create this mobile device to to solve all that problem. Well, again, so many different things went into this, but one of the big things was we felt like we were the smartest guys in the room and that we knew exactly what to build and that we didn't really need to talk to our customers. So we kind of hunkered down for almost six months just building this product. And, and I didn't, and this is, I'll put this on me. I wanted it to be perfect before I released it, before I let it go out into the wild. And both my co-founders are like, Hey, no, we got to get it out. We got to start getting testing and all that kind of stuff. Like, no, it's got to be perfect. And so we, we burnt a lot of our capital runway by way of trying to make this product perfect before actually putting it in front of customers. By the time we put it in front of customers, they didn't really accept what we were doing. The worldview that we had of this product and what they actually would use were just two completely different things. Now we started to build up a little bit of revenue and a little bit of traction, but it wasn't enough because we were not a home services company. We were a mobile application. So we made our money off of very slim margins or percentage or cuts, if you will, of when a service provider was detached to the house. Well, for instance, when a, a lawn guy comes out and mows your lawn and charges you 35 bucks, we make like $4. Um, I'd had to mow a lot of lawns in order to make any amount of money. So we weren't going to be able to sustain ourselves on our own revenue. And all the conversations I'd had with the venture capitalists, they said, if you get to these certain metrics, we'll come in and do another round. Well, we did get to those metrics. We had about a thousand homeowners in central Indiana using the product, but it, that wasn't enough at that time for venture capitalists to come back in with a second round. And so the frustrating part was I, I still strongly believe this product will exist in the world. There's already a couple of companies out there that are doing similar types of things. Um, it will exist in this world, but I didn't listen to my market that was here in central Indiana. Central Indiana is, you know, the, the home is absolutely the largest purchase most people here, I'm talking 95% will ever make is their, their home. And so, and a lot of them will overspend for that first home. And so they have this sense of pride, the sense of home ownership to the point of, well, I guess, and combined with the fact they've overspent, they don't have extra money to pay service providers to do the types of things that would have led our product to be successful, uh, again, here in Indiana. So, so many different assumptions, um, a lot of pride 
pride, a lot of ego, uh, a lot of those types of things is what led to ultimately running out of capital and not being able to raise more. Mm. Um, I'm curious, uh, after, you know, having had a setback like that, how did you bounce back and how did you regain your confidence? Well, I got to be honest, I, I have not completely bounced back. Um, you know that, so that was, when was that was 2015. So it's been two years. Mm -hmm. Um, I've not completely bounced back. So again, you know, I kind of lay, laid out. I was came from came from that exit. I was making great money. I had money in the bank. Well, I wrote my own five figure check into the company outside of the, the capital that we raised. I didn't pay myself for the two years that we were running that uh, company, uh, and so I dwindled down a lot of the things that I had. And when you take that blow of of failure. I had a lot of people around me saying, Jim, it's okay. You know, you can always do this. You can always do that. But, you know, I had two institutions and 14 individual angel investors place their bet on me and they had confidence in me that I was going to return at minimum, return their capital, but hopefully return more than their capital. And so as crazy as it sounds, the two institutions, I, I, I want to be very clear, I definitely care about, but they were kind of faceless institutions. The 14 individual angel investors that I had to go sit with across the table in person, look them in the eye and say, you know, thank you so much for your confidence and belief in me. But I lost all of your money. It, it's gone and it's never coming back. Um, my goodness, it was it was definitely the hardest thing that I've, I've had to do in my life. And that includes going through a divorce. Um, but it was also very humbling. And I think that, you know, it was it was at this point where I had just read um, Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. And I just said, look, I have I, I can't come out here as this egotistical, arrogant schmuck anymore. I just got to be honest and open up and and be vulnerable. And I did that. And it was again, I, I used the word humbling intentionally because 12 of my 14 individual angel investors, they looked at me and they said, Jim, you know, we get it. This is part of it. Um, here's what we ask of you. Whatever you do next, I want you to come see me because I want to write you another check. And I, I just kind of looked at him. I'm like, I don't think you understand. I just told you your money's gone. It's not coming back. And they're like, no, we get we get it. Like we just invested essentially a million dollars in your education. We want to participate in the next thing as well because you're going to be better off for it. But at this time, I mean, you, you truly have to understand this was the biggest failure of my life, of my career. And it was a million dollars of other people's money that I had lost. I wasn't ready to receive that message. I was definitely distraught. I mean, um, I remember the day that I, I went in to tell the team, you know, that we, we had to shut the business down. Um, I had had a coffee with a guy who was another uh, local entrepreneur and I was just kind of confiding him, like telling him about the, the Braveheart story that I was about to go, uh, go give to, to the team. But I shared with him all the things that I thought were going to happen. I said, look, I know the person who's going to cry. I know the person that's going to pick up the chair and throw it at me. And if it happens, I know the person that's going to go out to their car and get their gun and, and come back into the, you know, these were the thoughts that were going through my head. Now, fortunately, obviously, and I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but fortunately, none of that happened. But it's still the mental state that I was in. It was just 
it was just different. Um, I was shaken. I was shaken to the core. And um, like I said, I, I, I have started the rebound process, um, but I'm not fully back. I mean, there, there are things that I, I'm a little more gun shy now than I was previously to just put myself out there uh, professionally and in this business capacity. There are things that I would have done three, four, five years ago that I just can't do now. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I've completely bounced back. Hmm. What has been uh, what has been the process for recovery? I mean, we're we talking therapy, medication, you know, counseling, that kind of stuff. Like, I'm, I'm curious and, and I'm curious what you would say to somebody who is in a similar chapter in their lives right now. Well, the biggest thing is don't be alone. That is the the biggest thing that I have to put out there because it is the initial reaction that you're going to have is like, let me just go away, be by myself and do that. And that's exactly what I did. So I went, I took two weeks and I literally just sat on an, on an island and I was walking the beach every single day just to kind of clear my head. And it was needed because I needed distance. But the fact that I was alone all I could do was think about it. Every I, There was no way to give myself distance from it. I gave myself geographical distance, but I couldn't give myself mental distance from it. So it wasn't until I came back that I started to do all of the above with the except for, exception of medication. I didn't do any medication, but I absolutely was talking to every entrepreneur that I could that had been through similar things. Um, I would I definitely had uh, therapy sessions and we went, we went way deeper than just the, the business. I mean, we started getting into my childhood and why I felt like I owed certain people things from my childhood and all that kind of stuff um, but I want to say the biggest the biggest thing that I would encourage people to do if they're in that that uh, environment is talk to another person being alone just makes you weaker and you know we as, as human beings and as citizens of the world like we're meant to be in groups of people it's just it's it's nature and so do that don't shut yourself off so I have uh, one other question about this, um, and it, it's about money stories and, and sort of your internal narrative around wealth, uh, something that I've asked a lot of people. I mean, you've kind of seen both ends of this spectrum, having made and lost money and having grown up poor. Um, what did this whole experience do uh, you know, for you when it came to your relationship with money? It's a great question, but it's also a deep one. And I'm going to answer it uh, two ways. So, you know, one of the things that I do now is I actually coach entrepreneurs and I coach salespeople. And um, the biggest challenge that that most people have is their aversion to money. Um, they won't talk about it because it, it was always a taboo topic, right? So when you were young, you didn't talk about money in the household because it was impolite. Um, you probably didn't know how much money your parents made because you just didn't have that conversation. And I just think that's a, just a, a terrible thing. So now... When you start talking to people about, you know, well, how much money is a lot of money to you, they're going to give you small amounts because that is a lot. And I'm not trying to make light of it, but that's they're, they're shrinking their worldview because of that. And it's just very, very unfortunate. So then you fast forward to the other side of it. When I started to accumulate some wealth, my I, I guess I was able to continuously do that because I had already been poor. I knew what it was like and I made it out of that. So to me, it was like, psh, screw it. I'm going to spend whatever on this and I'm going to go do this and I'm going to, you know, have you know, all these risks because the worst thing that can happen to me is I go back to exactly where I've been and I was fine. I made it out of it. But you asked specifically, you know, this, this dichotomy of rich and poor and, and what wealth meant. It doesn't relate completely, but I hope that you'll you'll be able to pick it up here. What it does, when I had this failure, 
one of the per- the people that I w- I spent a lot of time talking to was a friend of mine named Pete Gall, and and Pete is just he has this profound way of words. And Pete said to me at one point, because I cared I cared about everything. I cared about everybody. I cared about everything. I wanted to make everybody happy. And Pete looked at me. He said, Jim quit caring about everyone else. And and I couldn't wrap my head around that. I was like, Pete, you're going to have to, you know, you do, do what you do. Like help me understand how I do something like that. And he said, Jim, you're going to die, right? You're going to die. And at that point, who will be at your funeral? And I kind of took a step back. I was like, wow, who, I mean, it's morbid, but who will be at my funeral? He said, those are the people that you need to start living for. Those are the people that matter that you need to care about. And he took it one level further and he said, but now while I meant all of that, who are the six men who will carry your casket and put it in the ground? And I am, I'm kind of getting cold chills again now, just recanting that conversation. But I mean, that's deep. And so my connection to money and to material things after losing it all, it just completely changed because the wealth, the real wealth came from other people. It came from being accepted into whatever community it is that you choose to, to be a part of now, which is completely different than going all the way back to one of the first questions you asked me, that lone wolf mentality. And so now I see the acceptance of those who actually care about me as my wealth. Hmm. Wow. Well, I, I think that makes a, a really uh, fitting uh, and poetic end to our conversation. So I want to finish with my final question, uh, which you probably heard me ask, I know, since you've uh, listened to our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? It's their ability to be themselves. I think that, you know, very early on, we try to fit in and we try to be like everyone else. And we see the advertisements on TV and we think that's what we need to be. And so we just always have these expectations either put on us or we intrinsically think other people are expecting things of us. And it takes a while. But I promise you, like after you graduate high school and after you graduate college, like the expectations are gone. It's all has to come from you. And what has to come from you is your your willingness to not think you have to fit in and be something that other people are thinking about that you should be. It's just being you. And that's what makes you unmistakable. Awesome. And for, Oh, one last question. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, uh, askjb.me is my website. Kind of talks about the things that I do uh, professionally. It talks about the stuff that I give back to with the community. Uh, and there's a contact page if you'd like to reach out to me. So askjb.me. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.